I'm okay, really. Y'all are looking like I'm about to go off again. It wasn't me, guys. It was not me. So, you know, you don't have to apologize to me. There's something odd with this mic, it seems. Is it a little too hot, perhaps? Come down a little bit. Hello? That's better, I think. All right. So ready to go. So yeah, so if you're convicted, then that's who you need to to, to say I'm sorry to. Yeah, I don't know that any of us really do. The idea of being spit out of somebody's mouth is not too appealing. All right, well, happy Mother's Day. How was that for a segue? <laughs> All right. We're going to uh, start a little bit differently today. I'm going to show you a, a, just a brief movie clip. It's about, I don't know, 90 seconds, two minutes, something like that. And it's a clip of a man named Richard Turner. Now, Richard Turner is a childhood friend of our very own Jim Blowers. And he describes himself not as a magician, but as a card mechanic, okay? And by his own definition, a card mechanic is someone who fixes card games, okay? But not to fear, he only uses his powers for good, strictly for entertainment purposes. But, so what I want to do is I want, want to have you watch this, and then I want to ask you a question when it's over. So let's watch. the audience shows up. <laughs> Your name? Aaron. Aaron? Lexi. Lexi. Well, I'm Richard Turner. I represent why you should never play cards with strangers. <laughs> when you play poker, blackjack, bridge, hold them, whatever your game, you want to make sure the cards are evenly mixed. Aaron and I are going to show you how it's done. So do as I do. Just cut your deck any way you want. Give it a cut. Got it? Mm -hmm. Now give it an up-the-river cut. Give it an alternating up the river cut. <laughs> Give it a flying three-way. Beautiful. <laughs> Casino procedures was called riffle, riffle, strip, riffle, cut. First, you break them 26, 26. Notice I'm exactly in half. And then you lace them up every other card. And then you have to do what's called a strip. That's making a bunch of random little piles. Good. One more time, give it another riffle. Another riffle. <laughs> and a straight cut. You're having a little trouble, aren't you? Yeah. Your right hand's screwing you up. Try it like this. Put them in your left hand. Take your index finger, break them across, slide them in, and then give them a one-hand bridge. And then, of course, after that, you have to give it what's called a one-hand flip-around cut. Like that. Now, I have shown you a half a dozen ways of shuffling and cutting the deck. They should be pretty evenly mixed, yes? Yes. Let's see if this deck is pretty evenly mixed. Wow. I want you to note, ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, suited numerically. Okay. So here's the question. When you see something like that, when you see anybody do anything like that, what is the first question that comes into your mind? How to do it. Exactly. Thank you, Andrew. How 
Did he do that? Okay. It doesn't matter if it's Richard Turner, if it's Penn and Teller, or if it's some other magician or illusionist or whatever. When we see them do something that completely baffles us, something for which we can offer no explanation, then our first response is almost always wanting to know how they did that. Now, oddly enough, I see a parallel between a demonstration such as this and the signs and wonders of God. Now, aside from the obvious differences between the two, there's one particular difference that stands out, and it's the one that's relevant to what we're talking about today. You see, when that question is asked, how did he do that? The, illusion, the illusionist or the magician will never tell, right? The how is a very closely guarded secret. It's the secret to the magic. But should you or I get asked that question after using our spiritual gifts and then God responding and doing something truly amazing, well, we should be more than willing to tell them about the love of Jesus that makes it possible. You see, it's an undeniable fact that Jesus' life and ministry was marked by signs and wonders that helped build the kingdom of God. It's an undeniable fact that the life of Jesus' disciples was marked by signs and wonders that helped build the kingdom of God. You can read about it in Acts. And... Really, that's interesting. There we go. And it too is a fact that your life and ministry should be marked by signs and wonders that help build the kingdom of God. Now, you may not have a prophetic gifting like our friend Ryan, who was with us last week, but you and your gifts do have a part to play. So what specific role, and that's really what we're talking about today, what specific role do signs and wonders play in building the kingdom of God? Is it, you know, is it all just for show? Is it for entertainment? Wow, I just noticed we need to pray for your sunburn. <laughs> Sorry, I just looked up and was like, oh my gosh, it's glowing at me. Um, sorry, squirrel. Um, <laughs> so, what specific role does signs and wonders play in building the kingdom of God? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. And the first answer to that question is that signs and wonders announce the inbreaking of God's dynamic rule and reign. Okay? So, Jesus states categorically that no one but the Father knew the exact timetable of the kingdom. Right? You know, a lot of people will make all sorts of claims to think that, you know, the end is now or the end is near or the end was, you know, last September or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, they're all still here. Um, who is it? Hal Lindsey that kept 
saying the end was a certain day, then he would revise it, then he'd revise it again, and then he'd revise it again, and he'd write a book every time, and it was like, that, that's a pretty good gig. Um, but even Jesus didn't know when the end was coming, right? And so we certainly will not know. And one of the things that makes it in particular difficult to know was that Jesus made four different time-based references to the kingdoms coming in the gospel. Not one or two, but four, okay? Here's what he said. At various times, and if you, can, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see these statements. Jesus made a statement such as, the kingdom will come. He also said, the kingdom has come. He said, the kingdom is coming soon or immediately. And he said, the kingdom will be delayed. Okay, he said all of those, those, that's the essence of the four statements that he makes about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the issue. If we are being true to scripture, then we have got to say that all four of those statements are true. Okay, we can't pick one and ignore the rest. Get out our black highlighter and, and, and highlight those other statements, sort of like Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible, right? So then, how do we understand that all four of these things could be true at the same time? Well, when you look at the Old Testament prophets, they often held um, together events that were both for the immediate present and for the distant future, and they would do so in one prediction. Here's an example. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, there is a promise of liberation, okay? That is understood both as being fulfilled in Israel's return to its land from their exile and as well in the ministry of Jesus, okay? So two different events, one prophecy talking about both things. So the essence of a prophetic view of history is to, to essentially grasp what it is that God is doing with man. Whether or not we get the exact chronological details correct is not particularly important, right? That's why you see so many prophecies that say, use the word soon. <laughs> okay, what does soon mean? Well, you know, in prophetic language, soon can mean years, right? So, we have got to hold on to each of those four strands of Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is in the future, in the immediate, in the present, and is somehow being delayed as well. Okay, And it's only when we hold those four contradictory things together that we really start to understand the glory and power of the kingdom of God. See, maybe it's through this prophetic vision that we can actually start to see through the eyes of God where he says that a thousand years are but a day. And so armed with this prophetic view of history, we can, to some extent, come to terms with this mysterious thing called the kingdom of God. Now, I've got a diagram that I have shown in this church a number of times, but I'm sure there are some, for some this will be a review, for others it'll be uh, something new, okay? 
But essentially what this diagram, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a second, but if you wanted to come up with a definition of the kingdom of God, you would say it something like this. It breaks through from the future to into the present in successive interventions of God. Okay? The event that took place in Jesus Christ just completely blew away the confines of human thinking and expectation. There was no Old Testament prophet that could have in any way conceived of what was going to happen. It completely transcended the expectations of the generation that Jesus was a part of. There have been biblical scholars and theologians, and they have written untold numbers of books trying to explain what happened. And some have, and even those expectations explanations that do full justice to all four of those strands of teaching, the best they can do is to provide a human model of something that's inexplicable. Okay? It is the ultimate, how did he do that moment. So see, what I want you to see here, hopefully this is not going to be awful if I come over here, we have the fall of man. So that's sort of where the whole thing starts. Adam and Eve fall in the garden. The promise of God left unfulfilled. So then Adam and Eve fall, and we have the, Old Test the promise of the Old Testament, right? That, that God's going to fix this at some point. And so lots of time goes by. And then you see the cross. And, and underlying all of this, starting with the fall, was the, this present evil age, the age that we live in, right? Satan is king of this world for now. So the cross comes. Jesus is crucified. He dies. He's risen, and he is ascended into heaven. Okay. So as you can see, you have the future age kind of going off in the future, but the kingdom of God actually kind of goes back and starts at that moment that Jesus died on the cross, okay? And so where we are living now is sort of in this place of tension in between the ages, okay? And what we see in Signs and Wonders are those occasions when, and I know this is, this is kind of mind-blowing to say this, but the future breaks through into the present, right? We see glimpses of the fullness of the kingdom of God come into our present situation. So what we really have is that, you know, the, the, that this mysterious nature of the kingdom of God consists of the fact that it's always here, it's almost here, it's delayed, and it's in the future. And the fact that the kingdom has come but is yet still to come creates this tension or this unexpected period in which this world continues while the next world is present already. Not in its fullness, but in part. You see, the Old Testament prophets expected that the arrival of 
this age would coincide with the termination of the present one. Right? That just kind of makes sense. Well, something ends, something else begins. But because of what happened in Jesus, we're forced to conclude that the age to come began in some mysterious way prior to the termination of the present age. And so what we say, and this is language that you'll hear around the vineyard and in other places as well, is that the kingdom is already but not yet. The kingdom is already here but not yet here. The two ages coexist. The age to come is present, but the present age hasn't ended. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you an explanation that may help you sort of understand this or, or use some, a human uh, event to uh, explain something as mysterious as the kingdom of God. And a gentleman named Oscar Coleman provided one of the most helpful illustrations of this truth. Okay. The final push of the Allied invasion of Europe during World War II was called D-Day. Right? That was June 6, 1944. Okay, months of planning secretly, nobody knew what was going on. All of a sudden, June 6, 1944, the Allies invade the beaches at Normandy. Okay, now, as we, as we can go back in history and look, it's pretty well generally agreed by everyone that that was the decisive battle of World War II. Okay, once the Allies had successfully set up a military position in Europe, it was only a matter of time before Hitler's armies were going to be defeated. But D-Day was not the end of the war. It took almost an entire year before all of the Axis powers were mopped up and Hitler finally surrendered. That happened on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the moment of final victory, which was May 8, 1945. So the time period in between June 6th, 1944 and May 8th, 1945 was a period when the war was won, but not yet won. See, the army that invaded on D-Day was the same army that took the final surrender of Germany. It was the same generals, the same divisions, the same troops. All of those were exactly the same as invaded on D-Day, and then they pushed forward, and they took the war all the way to VE Day. And so if we look at the parallel, the kingdom that will break through in the future is the kingdom that broke through in Jesus Christ. And it's in his death and resurrection that the victory has already been won. See, the end of the world essentially has already taken place. Yet, we still find opposition troops all around us. So it's kind of like we're living in a little French town behind enemy lines. And it really sort of seems to us like the enemy has the upper hand most of the time. But we know we're on the winning side. You see, what took place in Jesus was the last days in every sense of the word. You can't divide the last days into the beginning of the end, the end before the very end, and then the very end. 
It doesn't work that way. The kingdom came with Jesus. And ever since, we have been living in the last days. The second coming is just going to sort of bring about the final consummation of everything. And what was it that announced that the kingdom was here? That's later. <laughs> it's okay. I like someone with some answers. Matthew 4.23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. You see, and we see this pattern repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It was the preaching of the gospel, the good news, and the signs and wonders that accompanied Jesus' ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. And it was that that announced that the kingdom was here. All right, so that's number one. The second answer is that signs and wonders confirm the power of the gospel and the lordship of Jesus. I'm going to look at a scripture now from Mark's gospel. This is chapter 16, verses 15 through 20. Starting in verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents in their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down, at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, I know there's some strange stuff in that particular text. My wife would not pick up a snake <laughs> if her life depended on it. So, you know, that, some of that, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to be, be the first in line to drink any poison. Um, and I like to think I have a fair amount of faith. But, you know, so I, some of that I just don't understand, but some of the rest of it I do, okay? What I want us to get out of this, if we can sort of put some of that aside, is that God's Word clearly teaches us that Jesus wants the lives and the ministries of his followers to be characterized by supernatural works. Okay? Just like Jesus, those who spread the message of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ should perform miracles in his name as evidence that God's kingdom is active and available here on earth. Now, clearly, we don't do these works on our own. That scripture just attests to that. And the Lord worked with them. See, as Jesus' representatives here on earth, we minister under his authority. And everything that we do is through the power of the Holy Spirit so that it brings honor and glory to God and to Jesus. 
so he tells his followers after he left that the Holy Spirit was going to come to empower them and that they would do even greater miracles than he did. And what he's really referring to is the fact that a greater level and a wider range of supernatural ministry is going to take place. The key, however, to those greater things is having faith in Jesus. See, these miracles are not to anyone else's credit because it's still Jesus doing the ministry and the miracles through them. Signs and wonders done by true followers of Christ confirm that the gospel message is genuine and that God's kingdom has come to earth in a powerful and supernatural way. God wants these supernatural activities to continue within his churches until Jesus returns. Now, can I say this? God's word never suggests that these signs were restricted to the time period immediately following Jesus' departure from earth and his return to heaven. See, some people believe that these signs were only necessary to get the first churches started and to help get the message of Jesus spread quickly. But the Bible does not teach nor does it give any evidence that these supernatural activities would decrease or become unnecessary as the message spread and churches grew. It's not there. And if you, if you say that it is, then you really have to twist some things around and take some things out of context to make it so. Because in fact... The Bible says the exact opposite because a lot of the New Testament provides us with instructions on exactly how to carry out the ministry of the church with the same power and with the very same spiritual gifts in operation. We have Jesus' own words. You could consider Paul's instructions about spiritual gifts in numerous places in his epistles or James' instruction about prayer for the sick. And I mean, does it make any sense that if the church is to continue to serve the same purpose that it did in Jesus' day, that we would somehow need less power than they did? Jesus' followers are not only to bring the message of God's kingdom, but the power of the kingdom too. That's to say we're not just supposed to talk about it. Now, talking about it is good. We watched a video on evangelism as a staff the other day, and one of the things it talked about there was something called the big ask. That was what it was called, right? The big ask? Which really means nothing more than if you're talking with someone, invite them to church. That's the big ask, right? Go way out on a limb and say, hey, you know, would you like to come to church this Sunday? I don't know if we think we're going to get shot or stabbed or punched about the head and face if we ask that question, but we need to ask it a whole lot more than we are. So talking is good, but power is better.
You see, if these signs are not happening in our churches today, it isn't that Jesus is failing to keep his promise. Instead, it's usually evidence of a lack of faith and a devotion on the part of his followers in those local congregations. Jesus promised that if we remain loyal to him, then his authority, power, and presence will be with us as we battle the kingdom of darkness. We have got to rescue people from the devil's control by spreading the truth about Jesus, by living according to God's standards, and by performing supernatural signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Answer number two. Number three. Signs and wonders help us remember that God is real. And for that, we're going to look at a psalm. We're going to go to Psalm 78, verses 9 through 12. And that says, The warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their backs and fled on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his instructions. They forgot what he had done the great wonders he had shown them, the miracles he did for their ancestors on the plain of Zoan in the land of Egypt. The psalmist here is addressing the men of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And essentially, he's sort of casting their failure as part of the sin of the entire nation. On, no one is, the scholars really are not sure exactly what battle the psalmist is referring to here. Um, but whenever that was, they were armed, ready for battle. They had their bows and their arrows. And when the day of battle arrived, they turned tail and ran. And many believe that this is a reference to Israel's entire history of retreating from trusting and obeying God. And we see that. I mean, just read Kings and Chronicles. And you see Israel doing this. You know, up and down and up and down. They were okay, then they weren't okay. Then they were okay, then they weren't okay. So they had a history of this. And so, they were continually defeated by their enemies because they wouldn't obey. And part of the reason what the psalm is saying that they didn't keep God's covenant was because they kept forgetting what he had done. Right? If they had remembered God's faithfulness to him, to them, I mean, they would have been motivated to be faithful to him. But they forgot. They forgot God's past mighty interventions and, and kept falling into disobedience over and over and over. he did these miracles right in front of them. And yet, God's very own chosen people, Israel, still, for whatever reason, kept refusing to obey, to keep his word. And that should serve as a lesson to us that we don't forget the powerful works and the miracles that God has done in and through Jesus, as described all through the Bible. The most amazing of which was the resurrection of his own son from the dead. 
But I think it's more than just a lesson in not being forgetful of the past. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? The Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? Okay. Scripture's pretty clear on this, and you all seem to agree. That's good. <laughs> so it shouldn't really be a stretch, I wouldn't think, for us to believe that the Holy Spirit wants to do the same kinds of signs and wonders and miracles today that he did in the past. Does it not say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Okay. See, he desires that the message of new life in Christ might flow through our lives and through our churches with the same power and effectiveness that it had in the first or second century when the church just grew like wildfire. God acts in signs and wonders to produce the fruit of awareness, okay? Awareness that God is real and in the world in which we live. Not just some entity in heaven that we look up to and throw a prayer up to now and then. When we're in trouble, usually. But see, here's, here's how what I see as the problem in all of this. In an awful lot of respects, we, sitting here today, are no different than Ephraim. We're simply not armed with bows and arrows. We have the very presence and power of the God of the universe resident inside of us. And even then, we have this unfortunate history of running from the enemy, of refusing to trust and obey God. And in very similar fashion, we continue to be defeated by our enemies, or at the very least, to make no headway against them because of our disobedience. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, once said that God offends the mind to get through to the heart. God offends the mind to get through to the heart. Are we guilty of being mentally offended by signs and wonders? Is that why we don't pursue them? See, if that's true, then we've got to find a way to get over that. Because we're missing out on comp countless opportunities every day to remind people that God is real. The body of Christ thrives when it bears good news in a world full of bad news. The early church, from the apostles onward, participated in his work of doing signs and wonders through his people. Why shouldn't we today? See, people need to see more than a gospel of words. It's a gospel of power that's going to move hearts. And from a practical standpoint, let's just say you were in a conversation with someone, someone who's Muslim. 
believes in the Quran. Unless you are very, very intelligent, you probably don't want to get into an argument with them because you won't, very likely won't win. I mean, I can argue what the Bible says and they'll argue what the Quran says and it'll just be like that. But if I pray for them and something that is wrong with them gets healed by the power of my God, they can't argue with that. They've got to deal with that now. That's a reality in their life that needs to be explained somehow. And the odds are that they're going to look at you and go, how did you do that? And your answer will be, because Jesus loves you. I have felt all week that a part of this was supposed to be a demonstration of God's power. Is there anybody here who is in pain in a way that um, could either be demonstrated or that you would know beyond shadow of a doubt Let's say that there's something that you cannot do, like move something a particular way, you know. Is there anybody here like that, with that kind of pain? Nope. All right, then I think it's going to have to be you. <laughs> sure. We've called him Chester. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting down in our, our small group Wednesday night, and it went differently. We did the study like we were going to do. But we started talking about last week. We started praying and praying for things. And, and I'm sitting in my chair, and all of a sudden I open my eyes, and Jester's in front of me. Dr. Jester's in front of me. I don't leave. So I'm looking down at him, which is a weird experience in the first place, too. But he starts praying for my knee. And I got up and I could walk. I, could, I, I was walking without dragging my leg. I can walk upstairs now. I can walk downstairs if I'm careful right now. There's so many things I can do that are different because somebody prayed for me. Okay? It's not a 100%, and I'm asking God why not, but <laughs> I'm so much better than I was a week ago. And like I said, this has gone on for four weeks where instead of getting better, it was getting worse. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it just seemed like a nightmare to me, so I don't know. But it, it was it was one of those points where I just could not walk. I was having I was struggling every single day. There was so much pain there that I couldn't do anything. I can't go out I couldn't go out in the yard, I couldn't go out and do anything. And now I'm walking normally and I'm just yeah. <laughs> I was like, Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> couldn't do that before you. <laughs> He was so cute on Wednesday night. Well, that's true. He was particularly cute on Wednesday night because he wouldn't sit down. He just kept walking around like, oh, this is great. I haven't done this in so long. I just want to do it.
I was going to say, let's pray for your eye. All right. You're going to have to take our word for it here. This was, this was not exactly what I was hoping for, but you've heard at least one unsolicited testimony. Sally's eye has got a cataract in it, and it seems like it's getting worse. Um, and we've prayed for it a bunch of times, and nothing's happened, so we're just going to pray for it again. So if you want to, let's get the lights. Um, Wow. I know. It's kind of cool. I always wanted my life to have a soundtrack. Um, but let's do this. We're, we're just, if you need, I want to do prayer today a little bit different. First of all, is there anyone that is sensing that God wants you to come and pray for her eye? I don't mean you just want to. I mean, you really feel like God is telling you to. Okay. All right. You, you willing to do that? Okay. Well, it's Mother's Day. I mean, come on. <laughs> hey, you all use it all the time. So just taking a tool out of mom's tool bag and employing it on Mother's Day. So, but honestly, okay, so let's just say you don't have a demonstrable ailment, but if you just need prayer for something, would you raise your hand right now? Okay. So look around. Keep them up. All right. If you do not have your hand raised, would you please go to someone who does have their hand raised? Right, right now. wait until everybody who with their hand raised has got somebody with them. Okay, there we got Barbara. Oh, Barbara's going there. Got two in the middle still. Oh, Rich has got you? Okay. If, you, if someone is with you, put your hand down. Andrew? Nobody likes Andrew. All right. Donna likes Andrew. You have a you have a friend. All right. I want you to have a brief conversation with them, maybe a minute at most, and I'll time it. Um, just ask them what the issue is and what they need prayer for. So, go.
If you haven't started praying, go ahead and start praying now. Ask the person if it's okay if they put their hand wherever the issue is, if it's a physical one. And we just invite, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. Come into this place now and bring about healing. Give you thanks and praise, Lord. Just let your healing power flow through this space now. Those of you that maybe had some sort of a, you know, some sort of a physical thing going on, how many of you would say that you're 50% better than you were? Okay, we got 100% here. No, I, but I don't. I can't take claiming it as a. I mean, I need to know right now how healed are you? 50% better? Okay. One. Anybody else believe you're 50% better than you were when before the prayer? I understand. us and then we can sort of hang around as long as, as the Holy Spirit wants us to. So Father, I just thank you for what you're doing in this room right at this very moment. Just continue to bless the prayer that's going on. I thank you for healing that's taken place, healing that will take place. We give you all of the praise and honor and glory for it is not by the hands of men, but only by the grace and power of God that healing occurs. So we give you thanks and praise, honor and glory, and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you all. Have a wonderful Mother's Day and hope to see you again soon.